Okay, so Ezra, we're coming to the very end of Ezra today. We're, we're wrapping it up. We're going to start Nehemiah next week. So we're onward and upward here. Um, but let me just give you a quick recap here. Uh, Ezra 1 through 6, uh, Ezra's not in the book through the first six chapters. He shows up in chapter 7. <clears throat> but in Ezra 6, 1 through 6, we see that there is a great deal of opposition to the people of God uh, rebuilding the temple, working through this, uh, this period of coming out of Babylonian captivity back into the promised land uh, after about 70 years of, of exile. Um, they were exiled initially because of their, their sin and their rebellion against God, and he brings them into Babylon. Um, but in Ezra chapter 1, we see that there's a new uh, person in charge. It's not Nebuchadnezzar or any of the Babylonian kings. It's Cyrus, king of Persia. And he changes the whole policy of everything. He lets the people of Israel go free and go back to their land. But even as they do, they experience a great deal of opposition. People opposed to them rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple of God, uh, lots of opposition. But what we're seeing in chapters 7 through 10 is even more important than opposition from outside the church we're seeing that there is a even greater danger for the church and for Christians that comes from within, not just from without, not from outside. It, certainly there's going to be people opposed to, to the Christian message from outside, but, but the greater danger of the, of the church is what happens within it. And that's what we see in chapters 7, 8, and 9, and 10 is Ezra uh, is, is called to go to Jerusalem. He's, uh, he has it set, on his, set his heart towards teaching God's word to God's people. And uh, what we're seeing in chapters 9 and 10 is kind of the result of Ezra coming to Jerusalem and teaching them the Bible. What we see is a confrontation of the sin that has been permitted to fester within that body of believers uh, in Jerusalem and how they are to deal with it. I want to emphasize this, that the greatest danger to the church isn't from outside of it. The reason for that is because Christ has already conquered over everything. He's, he's disarmed rulers and principalities and powers. He is, he is sovereignly ruling and reigning in the world. Yeah, that doesn't mean there's not going to be external opposition to the Christian faith, but that's not where the primary danger comes from. The primary danger comes from within the church itself. That has always been true since Christ ascended into heaven. And so we, we need to recognize that. That I know there's some people in, probably in this church and certainly outside of the church that believe that that's not true, that would not believe that the, that the greatest risk is in from within the church, but it comes from outside of it. I know some would believe that the greatest risk to the church is a government conspiracy or a set of politics that are bad in our view or a foreign nation or something like that. But there's nothing in scripture that would indicate any of that to be true. The New Testament teaches that the, the real issue is within the church. That there are zero letters of the New Testament written about or towards the outside world. Every one of them is written for the Christian church and how the Christian church should look at themselves and live the gospel message out in their lives. 
That's the, the, the vast, vast majority of the things that are said. Um, people who reject the gospel are going to live like they reject the gospel. That's just the way it is. That shouldn't surprise us. The world is going to do what the world's going to do. But the real threat the church has to face in this world is the hypocrites who say that Christians uh, are, are people who just externally look the part, but inwardly are actually uh, devastated and living like the rest of the world internally. That's the real danger to the church. And so I think what we're going to see today is this point, that, that we need to clean our own houses up first. We need to be concerned about what happens here. Believing that the problem is all, of, all outside of us is like going out into the street and seeing a piece of litter on the ground and thinking to yourself, man, I just wish someone would clean up this neighborhood. It's trashy. But then walking back into your house to a giant hoarder's nest that you're living among with a bunch of newspapers and stacks of books and dead cats and all of it, right? That's the problem. That, that's that's what, we, what we are really seeing happening is we're, we're screaming about a piece of styrofoam on the street, which... Yeah, isn't good, right? Styrofoam is the scourge of the earth. We should agree with that. But, but listen, if that's out there and we're walking into a hoarder's nest inside our own home, we have a problem. And that's what Ezra actually has to confront as he gets to Jerusalem. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't care about what's happening outside of the church. We should, but we, but we should primarily care about what's happening within our own hearts and in our community uh, as believers. So let's take a look at this. Let's start in v- chapter nine. I, I want to show you uh, what Ezra is dealing with as he gets to the city of Jerusalem. Last week, we, we read about how he traveled and trusted the Lord for protection through that four-month journey from Babylonia to, to what is Jerusalem. Well, now he's arrived and it says in verse, nine, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, After these things had been done, these things refers to him bringing the money from, from Persia, uh, setting up judges and magistrates, all those things that we saw him being called to do in chapter 8. After all those things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra speaking, approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with people of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been the foremost Okay, so here's what's happening. Uh, there is first uh, a recognition of what's wrong in this community of believers. There's a recognition of sin here. Ezra is being told, after he sets up all the things he's got to set up, he's being told that there is sin among the people. Rebellion against God once again. And it's not just the average person, the, the typical Israelite that's, that's guilty here, although they, 
they are among themselves. But the real scandal is that it's the leaders of Israel, the people who should have known better, the Levites, the priests, the leading men. These people are as guilty, if not more guilty, of this sin than anyone else. Now, what's the sin issue? Well, it's intermarriage, but let me, let me talk about what this means. The people of the land, the peoples of the land, refers to all of these f- nations around Israel. We get the list of it. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites. So these, these are all people who live in vicinity to Israel, but they're not a part of Israel. They don't embrace the God of Israel. They are uh, polytheistic. They are worshiping multiple gods. They're not wa- worshiping the true God. And what's happened is, is that the people of Israel are marrying into these, these families. I want to be really clear here that what's, what's at stake is not the racial differences. We, we know that's not the problem because Moses marries a woman who wasn't Isra- an Israelite. Boaz marries Ruth, who is a Moabitist. But, but, uh, and so we see that that's not the problem. The problem isn't the racial differences. The problem is the religious differences. And so the fact that these people of Israel were called to be set apart from the nations was established long before Ezra's time, well into uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs of Israel. This whole thing was meant to be uh, set apart from the rest of the nations. So the problem was not a difference of race, it was a difference of faith. And that's, that's crucial to understand this. This is not promoting some idea that you can't marry someone outside of your ethnicity. That's, that's not biblical. We see many examples to the contrary. So that's not the problem. The, what this is prohibiting is the marriage of someone from a different faith background that is contrary, not just you know, apathetic about the faith, but like is actually hostile to your faith. And that's what's happening. And what's, what's so amazing about this is that this is the exact same sin that led Israel into exile to begin with. About a hundred or so years before Ezra's time, Israel was sent into Babylon because of this, because their, their hearts were turned away from God through the, the practice of intermarriage with people who were hostile to God. That started a long time before Ezra. That started back in, with Solomon. Solomon taking uh, wives that were not, of, uh, not worshiping Israel's God and, and it just continued from there. But eventually it gets to a head and God sends them into ex- exile and captivity. And so this is what's happening and Ezra is being told that this is what's happening and it's not just the, the average guy down the road who's doing this, it is the people who should have known better. This was happening among the, he calls it at the end of verse two, he says this is the faithlessness at the hands of the officials and chief, chief men, and that has been the foremost. Those, those people are displaying faithlessness to God in this, and that's the problem. That's the sin. It's, it's not even really about marriage in and of itself. It's ultimately about their faithlessness to the Lord. 
their lack of devotion to him, their willingness to be turned away from him. And that is fundamentally what all sin is. All sin can be lumped into that category of faithlessness before God to say, I would rather have what you have called me not to have instead of what you have called me to. That is the heart of all sin. This is just that one manifestation of it in this context of marriage uh, with people from the lands. So there's a recognition of sin in verse one and two. There's, there's a realization that it's happening. Now let's look at what happens next in verse three and four. Ezra's speaking here. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. What we're seeing in Ezra is um, a, a response to what he's learned about the people's sin. And it's, it's sorrow and it's appalled. He is shocked and horrified at what's happening. And he grieves. He's expressing sorrow because of the sins of the people. The reality is, is that this is a model for us, not necessarily the ripping out of our hair or tearing our clothes. That was a cultural expression of, of sorrow in that time. But sin should lead all of us to sorrow because Faithlessness against God is at the heart of sin. God is so faithful to us and our sin displays our faithlessness to him. Sin also leads to ruin and disaster and it, and it even more so spits upon the sacrifice of Christ who died for those very sins. The sin that is... Um, that. Israel is entrenched in here is why they went into exile to begin with. And so you can imagine Ezra sitting here on the ground, clothes torn up, his hair's ripped out, he's appalled, and you can just imagine him thinking to himself, seriously, we're doing this again? We're trying this again. Did we not learn? But, but listen, how many times have I said that to myself when I sin? How many times have you said that to yourself as you've engaged in sin? How many times have we done it, something again that we know it to be wrong and go, oh my goodness, did it again. Here I am again. I'm back here again. So Ezra mourns the sin of the people. And I think that that's actually an important step that we can't just blast through. We need to recognize, first of all, we need to name the sins. We need to then grieve the sin. And if we don't do those two things, one, we won't have any clarity over what the sin is. If we don't name it, if we don't recognize it, if we don't call it what it is, we're not actually going to be able to deal with it. That's crucial. If we're not sorrowful over it, we're not going to have any motivation to change. And so we see recognition and we see sorrow, but then those two things lead to confession. So verse five through 15, 
gets us there. This is the longest section for, for sure of what we're going to look at today and it's going to be kind of the center of what we look at. Um, but these verses are an expression of confession from Ezra's mouth to, to the Lord for these sins. And each of these, or this, this idea of confession includes three components that we're going to see as we walk through this prayer. And I'll just, we'll, we'll read a little bit and we'll stop and we'll talk about the components that we're seeing as we go. So look at verse five through seven to start. It says, and at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the day of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. The first component of confession of sin is this. It is an acknowledgement of guilt. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Sin places us in a position of guilt before the Lord. And if we're not willing to acknowledge our guiltiness before God for sin, we will never bring full restitution to, to our lives and we will not find the healing we long for. We need to acknowledge our guilt. So what does that mean tangibly? It means first that we don't merely psychologicalize our sin. Okay? Now I just made that word up. But psychologicalizing our sin is when we basically put some sort of a disorder upon ourselves. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But if we're doing that primarily to assuage ourselves of guilt to say, well, I'm not guilty because I just have this, this thing, this disorder. So that's why I do what I do. If we're merely psychologicalizing ourselves, we're not getting to the root problem. Notice that Ezra does not come to God and say, oh God, this is just a symptom of Canaanite attraction disorder. It's not. Sin is sin. Now, they may have had a Canaanite attraction disorder if there is such a thing, right? But, they, but that's not how he brings it to the forefront. He calls it what it is. It is guilt. It is iniquity. You may very well be genetically predisposed to certain uh, expressions of sin. You may be predisposed to substance abuse or gambling addictions. Or I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not even the case. You may have lived through traumatic things and that that has informed how you think about the world. You may have been raised with dysfunctional parents. Listen, all of that is true and may very well be true. And that may explain some things about you. But it doesn't change the fact that through the Spirit of God as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, 
you have the ability through his grace to make different decisions. The Bible is clear on this, that we are not enslaved to our sin anymore. Christian psychologist Diane Langberg, who um, has written a book called Suffering in the Heart of God, and I'm working through this. Uh, she's, a, she's a wonderful author and, and a great mind. She, she writes this. I thought it was very helpful as we think about this. She says, Though psychologists have offered uh, descriptions of diseases, they can, have, they can offer no true soul care descriptions of personality disorders such as narcissist or borderline and sociopath can be helpful in understanding what we're working with or against, but the descriptions with which we work are merely one way of talking about what we see, but it's like treating poison without removing the arsenic. It, it, she's getting to the point of if we don't drill down into the real issue yeah, you might have a, a disorder. You may have a personality problem. You may have all kinds of things. But, but at the heart of it all, we are sinful. And we've got to reckon with that or else we're just treating a symptom and not getting at the disease. Listen, we all have gone through painful things and every one of us knows that. And we have varying degrees of that, of course, in life. And those things may explain you, but they don't define you. Christ defines you. So how does this work in practice? Well, let's, let's just use an example that's kind of probably resonates with most of us. We, we probably have all seen aspects of this in our life where we are harsh and critical. I know I have been. I'm sure you have been. The Bible calls this being quarrelsome having this mentality of, I just want to get at this. I want to deal with this. We're just going to pester, pester, pester and be critical all the time. The Bible says that living with a quarrelsome wife is like a dripping faucet. Now, that's not just gender specific. This is a truism. It means that it's true just generally across the board. Living with a quarrelsome husband is like this too, okay? Um, They're just simply using an example, an analogy. So if you've ever lived with someone or have been around someone who is quarrelsome, you know what this is like and you know how exhausting it can be. I remember we were in Orlando back in November and the, this hurricane came through. It was like the first, first time in like 100 years that a hurricane came through uh, and hit Orlando in like, yeah, forever because it's kind of past the hurricane season. So we were there. I've shared a little bit about this in other sermons, but... We were in our hotel room and, and about two o'clock in the morning, uh, I'm kind of like in this half sort of s- s- getting out of sleep thing where like it's incorporated into my dream, but it's not like, full, I'm not fully awake. And I finally wake up and I hear this drip, drip, drip from the ceiling. And I go, oh, that's not good because now I've heard it and I can't unhear it. And <laughs> you're just, you just like sit there and you're going, I'm going, what, what do I do? Like, what do I do? The only way we could get out of that was to literally go down to the front desk, say, hey, we got a roof leak, and he moved us to a different room because there's no way we were sleeping through that drip all night. Where We all know what, that's, that's the analogy the scriptures use about quarrelsomeness. It's just this pestering, this constant thing. So anyways, okay, that said, how, how do we understand this? We can, we can do one of two things. We can either 
shift the blame and go, well, I'm, I'm like this because my dad was like this. And that may be true. You do learn your, your habits from your parents. But, but is that an excuse to just go, so therefore I can be like this? No. Instead, we need to plead with the Spirit of God to help us walk in gentleness and not quarrelsomeness. We're not to shift the blame. We need to own the blame. And it, and it's, but it's because of our hyper-therapeutic society that we, we want to have every reason except our own sinfulness to explain why we are the way we are. And as Christians, we've got we've to get back to what the scriptures say. And I'm not, like, like I said, I'm trying to caveat this. I'm not saying that psychology has no part to play in, in enlightening us on some of these things, but it doesn't remove our responsibility. We got to be very careful with that. Okay, let's keep going. End of rant on that one here. Um, let's look at verse eight and nine. Here's the second component of confession. So we have first a, uh, an, an acknowledgement of our guilt. Secondly, eight and nine, but now, this is still the prayer that Ezra's praying, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our, our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Here's what happens next in Ezra's prayer of confession. He remembers the merciful and steadfast love of God. We need to remember and reflect on the ways that God has shown his kindness to us, even in the midst of our sin. If we don't pivot our hearts to the grace of God, the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God towards us, even as sinners, we are going to be nothing but plunged into despair. And that's not what we're called to. We are called to be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And this is what Ezra's doing. He's remembering and he's verbalizing the ways in which God has shown his mercy and grace to the people even as they are in the midst of this sin. We need to remember that the reason Jesus came was because of our sins. And he came to deal with them. And we're told by him that he will never cast us out. He will never turn aside. He will never reject us. So we must remember the cross of Christ and the demonstration of God's eternal love for his people. This is what we need to remember that no matter what we confess, no matter what we have to admit to, there is forgiveness in Jesus. There's a song we sing here fairly often. We're not, not today. I should have thought about this earlier in the week, but there's a song, His Mercy is More. And one of the lines is, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
That is true. That is acknowledging our guilt, but pivoting our hearts to mercy. Okay, one more. Verse 10 through 15 says, And now, O Lord, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you're entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this has come upon us uh, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This final section of the prayer of confession is this, that uh, there is a plea for God's grace. Ezra is acknowledging that they deserve far worse than what God has given them. They deserve to be completely destroyed for their sin. But God has mercifully left them with a remnant of people to return and reestablish the land of Israel. Jesus also, through his death, has given us the grace that we need to take the guilt we've deserved and the wrath we've earned and take that upon himself. That's the whole point of the cross of Christ, is to take your guilt and mine and place it upon Jesus Christ so that we're not held guilty of it anymore as we come to him. So in in chapter 9, we're seeing the markers of confession. It is recognition of our guilt. It is uh, remembering the mercy of God. It is pleading for God's continual grace and forgiveness. But what we also need to see is this, that confession must lead to repentance. These are two different things. Confession leads to repentance. Repentance is a churchy word It's a word that simply means to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And this is what chapter 10 records for us. We're not going to look at all of chapter 10, but I just want to give you a sense of what we're seeing here. After Ezra prays in verse 1, it says, While Ezra prayed, actually, and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives 
and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, for we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as they had said. So they took the oath. Now that's the extent of what we're going to have time to look at in chapter 10. I encourage you to read it, read the rest as, as you have time. But what we see here is this, that the confession of Ezra leads to the confession and acknowledgement of guilt from the people and a commitment to change. That's what repentance is. It's, it's not to say that you're never going to go back to, as the Proverbs would say, go back to the vomit like a dog, right? Like, that is what we do when we go back to sin. We just keep going back to that same source. But repentance is a genuine change of heart that says, I long to be different. I long to be right with God. I long to forsake this sin and walk away from it. It, it has to be done by the grace of God in our lives. But what we see in the New Testament, as we get to the New Testament, we see two things at least um, on this. We see first in Romans 2.4 that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. It is the, the acknowledgement that God is kind to us and he will accept us and receive us that motivates us for repentance. And then we see in Acts chapter three, I'll just share this passage with you. Acts 3, 19 and 20. Peter tells us that there are three things that happen as we uh, repent of our sin. Peter speaks here, he says there, this, repent therefore and turn back. That's what repentance is, it's to turn back from your sin. One, that your sins may be blotted out. Two, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And three, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Think about those three things that, lead, that repentance leads to. Repentance leads to our sins being blotted out. Times of refreshing coming to us from the presence of the Lord. And we having Christ meaningfully in our lives. Who wouldn't want these things? What Christian wouldn't want to have the guilt of their sin removed? Who wouldn't want to find our souls refreshed again? Sin is exhausting and we all know it. And who wouldn't want to be in right relationship with Jesus? We need to remember that the way to that life that we are, that we are shown in the scriptures, the way in to the removal of guilt, the, the, the joy and refreshment of the Lord in our lives and, the, and a meaningful relationship with Christ only comes through confession and repentance. Any attempts at reforming ourselves outside of the gospel, the grace of God for us, are superficial and they will never stick. And so what we need to do is have a genuine heart that wants to be changed by Christ. In that way, we clean up our own house. We clean up that hoarder's nest that exists in every one of us. And then we can worry about the streets outside our house. But the way forward is to, to confess our sins, to repent, and to walk in newness of life. 
again, Diane Langberg in her book uh, uses the analogy to explain sin to us. She uses the analogy of sewage, which is a really, you know, we all get that, right? Um, And here's what she says as it relates to our sin. She says, the most precious truth of all time and eternity is that there is a redeemer. There is one who became sewage for us that we might be clean and pure and holy. He was not just littered with our sewage. Scripture says he became the thing itself. He did not come to the earth to study us. He became like us. He got inside of us. And I would add that C.S. Lewis follows this up well with the, in, in his book, Miracles. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very root and seabed of his nature. But he goes down to come up again and to bring a ruined world up with him. That's the good news that we have as we come to Jesus, that he came down to become sin, not just to have sin placed upon him, but to be sin. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ was treated as if he was sin so that we would be the righteousness of God in him. But we have to get there through repentance and confession. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, this passage that, puts in front of us uncomfortable things. It puts in front of us the reality that we have, we have been totally marred and broken by our, our sinful nature. And yet it also puts in front of us the reality of your grace and goodness and love through Christ. We pray that we would turn to you. We pray that each of us wouldn't harbor or give safe harbor to our sin, but that we would embrace the forgiveness that you offer us through the cross. Would you draw us there, God, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some